It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, should police be equipped with body-worn cameras? Vancouver Council thinks so. Plus, a new report shows Vancouver is one of more than 100 overseas police stations the Chinese government is operating to monitor and harass citizens living in exile. Why are they allowed to exist? And the ice war diplomat, Canada's former ambassador to the USSR, gives us a behind-the-scenes view of the 1972 Summit Series. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Tomorrow's rush hour, according to Environment and Climate Change Canada, the recent cold weather has uh, primed the south coast for um, some low elevation snowfall. A low pressure system will spin over uh, Vancouver Island, producing periods of light snow and a risk of freezing drizzle beginning in uh, early Tuesday morning. That's what we should be looking forward to and preparing for. But let's talk a little bit about snowmageddon from last Tuesday. Now, you may all recall, uh, we received 20 centimeters of snow last Tuesday, uh, which led to the uh, chaos in the lower mainland. We all saw that with major transportation arteries clogged and bridges and, and the tunnel closed as well. And in many cases, people stuck in traffic for up to more than, actually not even up to, more than 12 hours. Well, today in a letter to the um, Transportation Minister, Delta Mayor and Metro Vancouver Board Chair George Harvey is calling for the BC government to review its snow removal contracts. Harvey uh, described the response to heavy snowfall in the region last week as a failure. George Harvey joins us now. Mr. Harvey, thank you for speaking to us today. Oh, anytime. Uh, I'll see. I know what prompted, uh, obviously, your letter uh, to the minister, but was there something specific in what transpired over Tuesday night that, that convinced you to send a letter to the minister about looking at the overall snow removal? Well, I think what bothered me was so far as the, uh, the exasperation that happened to all the cities. The cities do the best job they can in snow clearing. And, you know, like in Delta's case, we're over 143 years old. Um, this isn't the first snowfall we had. Um, but the every provincial responsibility failed insofar as snow on the snow clearing. Uh, the Alex Fraser Bridge, the George Massey Tunnel, all in the Highway 91, Highway 99. And it really created a, a problem that I haven't seen in my long career in local government. Uh, but I also wanted to look at what, what could we have done better uh, in Delta's case, we were out 48 hours before, and our, our, our rec- you know, you can see that by the white lines that were all over the roads as far as the brining that we do. And then we had every single truck out. We rode actually when the snow was falling, uh, and other cities were the same. I talked to their mayors. Uh, we had a plan. Uh, we activated it. It worked very well until such time as the provincial infrastructure just became gridlock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, we see that happens when we have an accident in the tunnel or an accident in the Alex Fraser Bridge traffic jams all over the grid there but this time it, I, I just couldn't get over how bad it was and in your case I, I listened to your experience and I, I know a person at Metro one of Metro staff that had overnight at the casino on Queensboro mm-hmm. uh, and we just can't let this happen again my also concern was that even though I think you know I've talked to my staff about we doing a better job on social media but the provincial emergency alerting system why aren't we using it I know a lot of people that I talk to that got stuck like you, that if they would have had a message on their phone from the provincial emergency alerting system, say, uh, lengthy hourly delays, you know, please try to find an, uh, an overnight location somewhere or stay in your, or stay where you are until further notice, until it clears, 
that would have helped a lot of people plan for it. Because once, as you know, once you got in it, you couldn't get out of it. Yeah, there was a couple of places on Highway 99 where I saw a few folks uh, doing a U-turn, but I was thinking, oh, I'll just, I'll just deal with it and move through. But then you just hit hit the spot where you don't move for hours and hours. And look, I was fine at the end of the day. I'm in a vehicle. It's warm. I uh, had food with me, gassed up. But there's many people who ran out of gas, folks who probably wanted to pick up their kids. I mean, it, it had real impact on, on, on everyday people, and I, and I, and I understand that. Um, do you think part of it has also been, it, it, we have this snow clearing is kind of like governance in that it, it is spread over 21 municipalities and a provincial government. Is there, do you think, a better way to work together here and, and say, I'm not looking for a, a snow czar or something like that, but at least a better way to work together so we put our best resources to the right places at the right time as quick as possible? Oh, no, and I, I've said to other, in other interviews, I have no, no uh, thought of doing a metro committee on this. I mean, that's the worst thing you can have is more people. I mean, I'm the mayor of Delta. I'm responsible for Delta. And uh, our crews react according to the budget they're given by the local governments. And uh, we do a pretty good job at it. We do not need one big organization running. Miscommunication, more expense. Uh, I'm not interested in big meetings and lunch. I just want to ensure that uh, as Delta and, and as the mayor, we're doing everything possible within our budget and making sure that we're efficient. But again, until such time as the province, and another thing I wanted to make sure is the province has a responsibility for that main road contract. We don't staff up just for the average snowfall. We staff up for an emergency. And I want to know if that main road contract has the ability for them to staff up to an emergency like we just faced. Hmm. Uh, and, and I guess part of it also, you know, we talk about climate change. It's not just about hot weather and atmospheric uh, conditions, uh, atmospheric rivers. It's, it's also about increased snowfall and more snowfall and unpredictable snowfall as well. I guess that's all part of it as well. Well, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're facing increasing prolonged winds all the time now. Uh, we have a storm alert that we response, uh, respond to. We bought more equipment because we have like, more extensive flooding when, they, when we have surges over the beach walls and those types of things. And snow falls right up there with it. Uh, climate change has shown that the weather changes are more dramatic now. And we have to ensure as local governments that we can match that. But the province has to be a leader here and ensure that the main corridors, uh, you know, all the bridges, the provincial highways, uh, they can handle that. And I don't think they can right now. Mm-hmm. It's been shown that they can't. You know, I, I've been talking about some of these things on this show uh, the day after and many days after. Um, one of the other things some of the listeners have been saying is, look, a lot of this would be dealt with if either people stayed home, although I would argue they have to work, and the other one is snow tires being made mandatory. And, and, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. I'm from the interior, uh, and I understand that sentiment. Uh, but at the same time, one would argue t- in today's housing, many people live in small condos and they have no place to put a put their tires, even though I know that you can store them in other places. Do you think snow tires should be made mandatory? That those types of things as well. Well, definitely, as they are now, uh, there's they're mandatory on our major routes, to, say up to Whistler and up the interior and uh, up to Coquihalla. Um, it's tough to inf- it's going to be very tough to enforce it here in the Lower Mainland. I mean, some people can get away with it when they're driving. In our case, just in Ladner, but once they're outside of Ladner and try to go up to North Delta, the hills, it doesn't work. I took a ride out on the on the Tuesday evening on 56th Street. And I have my snow tires were put on two weeks before, and uh, at just at 16th by the Shell Station, the gentle grade it was gridlocked because people were just spinning. And even for and even I saw a jeep that was spinning, and we had to go out into the other lane to get by them. Uh, but we have to do a better job individually, and you're right, as as people to make sure that we're prepared for these winters, and that includes 
ensuring your gas tank's full all the time. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it. That's, you know, that gives you more weight in the car, uh, more preparation, a little bit of emergency blankets, those types of things. Uh, but again, I really go back to the province and that we, we have the provincial taxes are paying for this emergency uh, notification system. I think this qualifies as one of its uses. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Mayor Harvey, thank you so much for your time. I know it was a big deal, a lot of calls last week, and I'm sure we'll get more on this issue because it was such a unique um, an event. But more importantly, our response certainly needs to improve, and I think that's the general sentiment uh, from, from, from listeners as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, and again, anytime. Take care. Vancouver City Council is set to vote on a proposal to equip the city's police with body-worn cameras. The motion, authored by ABC Vancouver Councillor Lenny Zhao, would direct city staff to identify the cost to implement and operate a full complement of body-worn cameras for on-duty frontline officers in the Vancouver Police Department. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association has raised privacy concerns about the concept. They're saying uh, the camera should only be used if no other less intrusive methods uh, are available. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Councillor Lenny Zell. Lenny, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Chad. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Uh, Let's talk uh, about this issue uh, about uh, equipping police with body-worn cameras. Uh, the motion itself is authored by you. Why do you think this is important? Well, I think um, this is uh, uh, in our platform. So I think that's also aligned with what we heard from the public. Uh, this motion is about uh, starting the uh, process of implementing the body-worn camera with the Vancouver Police Department. So this is the uh, one of very important public safety policy. That's what we heard in the campaign, as well as people want uh, transparency and accountability. So this motion will deliver exactly like that. And, you know, on top of that, this, this motion also is based on evidence. People want evidence-based policymaking. This one also exactly deliver the evidence. So that's all the reason why we think it's very important to put this, put this uh, motion forward. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the three examples you gave me there was uh, public safety. How does this make people safer, do you think, with police wearing cameras? You know, I think uh, what happened is uh, right now there's a... Uh, uh, so many studies show that when people become more self-conscious of being watched on the camera, so they will limit their behavior, so, which is true for both public and police. So in that sense, it will be, you know, protect police as well as public from being, you know, those violent crimes. So I think, it's, yeah, from that perspective, yes. Uh, any sense of what kind of dollars we're looking at in regards to cost? So, you know, with the uh, exact cost of implementing such a program still unclear, this motion uh, direct staff to work with uh, stakeholders to identify the cost. But having said that, I think there will be some potential cost-saving opportunities in the long run. So as we all know, some of the court cases might last for years due to lack of uh, evidence. So you could imagine all the costs associated with uh, police investigation, with the legal process, with, with the administration costs. So no doubt this body-worn camera will be make the investigation easier as well. So that will be a cost-saving opportunity. I think um, also, you know, with the uh, addressing the public safety issue, we hope to explore some other funding options with the provincial government. So, yeah, so from that, all that perspective, I'm really confident uh, the staff will come back uh, with, uh, with, the, with the motion and give us a very clear uh, cost breakdown for the, for the program. Do you have any concerns over privacy? The Civil Liberties Union has brought up the issue of privacy for citizens. Uh, do you have any concerns around that? Okay, so there are some, some, some uh, best practice, and also the province uh, you know, published some guidelines to follow the uh, privacy. So I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big concern. 
So as as long as you know we 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 you know set up the rules and the policy and we follow the rules, I don't think privacy will be a concern for this program. As someone who has uh, uh, authored uh, this particular motion, are there other jurisdictions you think that we should be watching that have, in your mind, done a good job in regards? to uh, equipping police with uh, body-worn cameras? Yeah, absolutely. So Delta Police Department, they did a pilot a couple of years ago, and uh, I think it was really successful. Even the uh, Minister of uh, Public Safety actually endorsed this uh, pilot program with Delta. And also, like the, um, the RCMP, they are rolling out the uh, national-wise uh, uh, rollout for all these body-worn cameras. So I think they're going to roll out for 10,000 to 15,000 cam- cameras across the country. But we have to do it now. If we don't do that, like in a couple of years, Vancouver will be the only city without a body-worn camera. So that's why this motion is very important. And, and when you say it won't be, it'll be one of the few cities without body-worn cameras, you're talking about the rest of the country? I mean, does, so Toronto has something like this? Yeah, Toronto imp- uh, also, you know, working on the rollout for their, uh, for their body-worn cameras. Yeah, so they are doing that as well. I see. Um, but, I mean, it has... And is any jurisdiction in the U.S. or even Canada shown in your mind that you can point to specifically where that people are safer or at the very least uh, there has been cost savings in a system because less chance of going to court, police, and yep. most importantly, people they arrest uh, are, are better behaved? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I read a lot of research and study about that because coming from an academic background, so I'm really, really serious about the numbers, serious, serious about the evidence base. So there was one study, I think, in California. Uh, so it shows that after the implementation, the complaints against uh, police officers reduced significantly by 88%. Also, the incidents involving the use of force decreased by 59%. So that's one study. And there was another study, I believe, that in Orlando, that also, also shows that um, uh, uh, the uh, the, play, uh, the the incidents use the use of play, uh, force reduced by 53 percent, and the civilian complaints against police dropped by 65 uh, percent. And also, I read another very interesting article uh, again based on study from US. It says actually, you know, every every dollar uh, by every one dollar we spent on the body worn cameras, four dollar was saved in resolving the complaints. That including all those legal costs, all those police. So from that investment perspective, it is going to be a very good investment for all the taxpayers in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to, uh, as the Civil Liberties Association has said, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has said, that uh, that these cameras should only be used if no other uh, sort of less intrusive method, methods are available? Or do you think it just gets too complicated that we need to be heading in this direction? Well, again, I think, Jess, thanks for this question. It's more like operational question. So that's exactly the this motion is about. So the staff will need to work with the stakeholders mm-hmm. and bring all those uh, costs and other information to city council. So that's what we are trying to do. Mm-hmm. But and I think we, are, we have very good confidence in the staff, in the policy. And, you know, we have very uh, transparent system here. So I'm really confident about um, this information is, will be solved. Uh, and just to confirm, this will be before council uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, and uh, you move forward from there. That's right, yes. So we hope to, you know, the, the, the uh, staff team will report back to council by early, early 2024, and we hope the implementation will be in 2025. Oh, sorry, did you say 2024 or 2023 in regards to the report itself? The pilot will be in 2023, but okay. this particular motion is about the 2024 report back to the council 
early 2024, and the implementation will be 2025. All right. Pilot program in 2023, report back in 2024, yeah. implementation in 2025. Got it. That makes yeah, complete sense. For our, yeah, for our motion, it's about uh, the 2024 and 2025. Excellent. Excellent. Nothing to do with uh, the pilot. Yeah. Lenny, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you uh, in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jess. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. On Friday, we spent quite a bit of time discussing child care. Uh, Premier David Eby and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a joint announcement on the issue. Uh, as of December 1st, parents of kindergarten-age kids and younger now see big savings on their daycare uh, bills. Parents can expect to see savings of $550 for kids under the age of 3, $445 for kids age 3 to 5, and $220 for kids in kindergarten. Now, the province is directly funding daycare centers, so parents are not required to sign up. Sounds great, but not all day- daycare providers are signed up, and that's one of the challenges that uh, it is a bit of an uneven system. So I want to talk to our next guest. Uh, she's Karen, uh, Karen Kirkpatrick. She's BC Liberal Critic for Child and Family Development and Childcare. Uh, she joins us now. Hi, Karen. Hi, Jess. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for, for joining us. Um, your sense of the announcement last week and where you see, tell me where you see some of these uh, issues that I've been talking about. Where do we need to improve? Well, the announcement was a re-announcement of um, dollars that were committed to in 2021-22 uh, for the federal government. Um, we only have at this point, by the end of the year anyhow, we're going to have 8,000 spaces in BC that are $10 a day. That's out of 135,000 spaces, licensed spaces that we've got in BC. So it's taken an awfully long time for this to roll out. And uh, uh, we're still going to be 2,000 short of the commitment that, uh, that BC made to the federal government in order to get funding. So I'm a, a huge supporter of universal child care, um, but my complaint is that it's not getting rolled out effectively. It's not getting rolled out um, evenly to all parents uh, and to all child care providers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to the 4%, I believe, that have not signed up uh, these, unlicensed, these op- unlicensed operators, what is the challenge there? What are you hearing? Now, just to clarify, are you talking about unlicensed child care providers or those who are licensed who haven't decided to Sorry, sign those, up? Sorry, those who are licensed that have not signed up. Right. It is, um, it, it's, it's very bureaucratic. Um, it's very difficult uh, for all of the reporting. Um, but there are also other things that are challenges. And the fee caps, uh, so what the provincial government has, 
committed to actually reimburse uh, these providers for, in many cases, will not allow them to cover the cost of actually operating their centers. And so some of the operators have decided that they can't afford to be part of the program, and so that's why they're not signing up for it. Hmm. Uh, do you find? Do you think there's going to be a solution there? Uh, is there? Is it possible for a solution there, or, or are we going to assume those folks are just not going to be part of the present system? Well, I hope there's going to be a solution there. Government has got to have a better understanding of actually what it entails to operate, whether it's nonprofit or it's individually owned. They have to have a better understanding of what it actually costs in order to be able to provide quality childcare, early learning. Um, to uh, to children. And so with a realistic understanding of that, they've got to be able to fund the program realistically. And the irony is they, they have got more money than they need to be able to do this. And in fact, they've actually asked the federal government to be able to roll over funds. And British Columbia has lost tens of millions of dollars that they've had to pay back to the feds because they can't get it out the door. So there is an ability to, to work with more of these child care providers, but it's got to make economic sense for them. Should the program be income-based? Well, I mean, I would like to look at something that is certainly means-based, because if you've got somebody who is making, you know, a family making sixty or $70,000 a year paying $10, and there's, uh, you know, somebody making $150,000, and they're getting that same uh, $10, they may also be, you know, if, if they don't need that, more of that funding could go back into child care. And anybody that I've spoken to at the higher income levels, they say that they, they don't need that. So right now, if, if a family of, let's say, $150,000, $200,000 family income would be eligible for something like this, even, and, and a family of, let's say, uh, had a combined income of $70,000, it's not income or means tested at the moment. There is some level of that at this point, but the longer term, and that's during this transition, um, but the longer term goal is that it is universal $10 a day across British Columbia for for all parents. Okay. Uh, When the government says licensed centers, what do they mean by that? Is it just they're, they're approved by the government? Or does that mean when you say license that, you know, the employees that they have or let's say um, have or are, are, you know, early childhood educated and trained individuals? What do they mean by licensed? It's a higher level of requirements um, than the non-licensed or the just registered uh, smaller uh, child care centers. So, yes, they have to have ECEs. They have very strict ratios in terms of um, how many children per ECE. Uh, so it does um, work to ensure a higher quality of child care is provided, or at least uh, uh, it, it's, uh, it's committed to a higher level of ratios and services that are provided. So um, it's very interesting you asked that question. <laughs> it's very interesting that uh, Minister Chen has told me that there are 135 licensed spaces in British Columbia. Um, but it's actually the Ministry of Health that sends people in to do the health and safety inspections and actually provides the licenses. And Ministry of Health um, will not provide a confirmation of how many actual license spaces we have in BC. Uh, you mentioned some numbers after my first questions. I just want to go through those again. Can you tell me how many spaces there are presently? You, you were mentioning that in, in regards to the first question. 
Well, there were, um, in the summer of this year, there were supposedly 6,000 spaces that were $10 childcare spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and the announcement says there'll be up to 8,000 of the $10 spaces by the end of this year. That's 2,000 less than what they committed to. They said 10,000 by the, by the end of this year. Um, and, and that's where we're at. 2017, they made the promise for $10 a day child care. They were the first to sign on um, with the federal government back in 2021, and we're still just not there. And the, the, the numbers that uh, the government has thrown out, I want to clarify these through you as well. Uh, the, the $550 for kids under three, 445 for kids age three to five and 220 for kids in kindergarten. And that yeah. will impact about 69,000 children. Is that the right number? That's what I understand. Um, but this is difficult for us to actually confirm these numbers. We've, we've asked, uh, government to, uh, to, to give us that breakdown, but that, that is, I'm, I'm going with the same numbers that you've been given. Uh, and have the, has the government given you any sense as, as an official opposition critic as to how long it will take to implement the full $10 a day daycare that they're talking about in this province? Uh, I understand that they've got the commitment is to 2025 or 2026. Um, but as, as well as the $10 a day childcare, the, the bigger issue I think right now is we don't have enough childcare spaces. So, if they can, we can announce $10 a day, but right now I think we're about 170,000 spaces short of what we actually need to be able to provide childcare. So they may be able to roll the program out, but there are so many other things at play that are going to make this very difficult. Not to mention um, there are a number of childcare providers closing their centers right now. And there's parents out there, I'm sure that they know, particularly if they've got a small child care provider down the street that they drop their kiddos off to uh, every day. Those are the child care providers that are starting to close because this government has made it so difficult to operate um, in this new framework that they've set up. Yeah, a lot of, in my sense is a lot of folks uh, have emailed me and uh, called us as well that they're generally, they're happy with what they're hearing. But it is such an uneven system right now in regards to those who do get subsidies, those that don't, uh, those who feel that uh, it should be means tested, as you and I have discussed. So there's lots of, uh, mm-hmm. it's very uneven right now in regards to what's been um, offered and how long it's taking uh, as well. Corinne, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Last week, the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver uh, says the typically slow conditions it sees in November were even more sluggish last month as home sales dropped 53% from a year ago and 15% from October. Now, those kind of stats come out on a semi-regular basis. Uh, Whether it's uh, here in the Fraser Valley, we pay attention to real estate. It's part of our lives. We spent so much of our lives saving up for a down payment for a home, the stress of buying a home, the stress of paying down a mortgage, dealing with the challenges of the up of an upkeep of a home as well. It's often said we, we wouldn't have uh, anything to talk about at Vancouver dinner parties if it wasn't for real estate. It's part of who we are here in this region. So when the BC Assessment Authority sends out its yearly assessment in early January, we all pay attention. We want to see how well our house is doing in regards to holding its value, in some cases even wanting to know what the neighbor's house is worth as well. Well, the assessments will be out in early January, so we thought it was a good time to catch up with the BC Assessment Authority. Joining me from that organization is Brian Morrell. Brian, thank you for joining us today. 
Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me here. Hey, absolutely. Uh, it's one of those things I, I know we, we, we receive our assessment uh, and then, you know, you talk to your friends and your neighbours. It's one of those things that I think all of us here in Metro Vancouver pay attention to and, and throughout British Columbia. Uh, and I know the, the, your assessments will be out uh, in early January. What, what trends are you seeing? So generally what we're seeing across the entire province is about a 5 to 15% rise in assessment values, and that really goes for, for all residential properties. Uh, and, uh, and I guess since then, and, and just to confirm, when you do the assessments, it's for July 1st, am I correct? And that's the value of a home at that time? That's right. So when I say 5 to 15%, that really reflects July 1st, 2021 to July 1st, 2022. It's that change in values. It's that change in values. So... Since then, we have significant rate hikes. Uh, in fact, we're expecting another rate hike uh, on Wednesday, I believe, probably a quarter point. Some people are thinking even half a point, but most are saying a quarter point. Uh, so whatever we've seen the last six months, uh, that will not be part of, obviously, um, uh, that assessment. That's right. So what we've seen, uh, I guess, since the market peaked around March or April of this year, is prices coming down, and uh, that's something that you'll see reflected a little bit more as we get on to the 2024 assessed values next year. Um, if people want to, don't agree with an assessment, what's the process? I'm just curious. Yeah, the process, I mean, first I would say come to our website. Our website has so much information on it. You can go and see properties that sold that are similar to yours. You can see the assessments of similar properties. Um, you know, if you've seen what you've uh, been able to see there and you still don't feel satisfied, we'd always recommend that people get in touch with us. You can call us at one eight six six value bc You can email us. Further to that, if you still disagree, then there is an official appeal process and the deadline for that. It is January 31st of each year. And there's uh, there's good instructions for that on your assessment notice. Uh, out of curiosity, since you're representing the whole province, what percentage of your uh, of the homeowners actually ask for a reassessment? Uh, the, for appeals each year, it's typically something just under 2% each year officially appeal their properties. Wow, that's, a, that's very interesting. I've always been very curious, how do you do assessments? Like, do you, I mean, it's, when, you know, when you go to your bank for a loan, they will do an assessment. If you want to sell your house, they will send somebody, they'll do an assessment to walk through. Uh, you obviously cannot walk through every property in this province. How do you do your assessment as an assessment authority? Yeah, so we have a pretty good database. We have quite a bit of information on every home in the province. And what we do is we compare that information that we have to uh, to sales, so actual sales that took place in the market. So we do the best that we can to find properties that sold that are similar to yours to develop a, a strong indication of market value for July 1st each year. Uh, and out of curiosity, uh, if uh, you're saying in this case, you're seeing a 5 to 15% uh, increase because of there's been very little sales, but property values have uh, have been increasing. Uh, do you see that impacting most people's um, municipal taxes and property taxes? Uh, no, not so much. I mean, an increase in assessment it does not automatically result in an increase in property taxes. Uh, really, the important thing is what the what your assessment did relative to other residential properties in your community. So, if, say for example, if the whole market comes down fifteen percent. I mean, that impacts all the properties. So it doesn't really impact your property taxes because the municipal budgeting needs, they still are what they are at the end of the day. Do most provinces have something similar to what you do at the assessment authority, which is an early early part of the year, they send out a, an assessment notice or do they do things differently in other provinces? I think it does vary a little bit. I mean, some, at some, in some provinces, it's actually done at the municipal level. And then there's other provinces where it's done at the provincial level, but they don't actually necessarily do an annual assessment role. 
Um, so that's one thing that BC assessment, uh, you know, here in BC, we get applauded for quite often is that we're able to put this out year over year on an annual basis. Uh when you, I mean, is it is it you, you sort of walk me through how you do all of this in regards to sales and 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 uh, and you have a very good d- database um, in regards to the the website itself. Is there anything new on it in regards to what people should be looking for? Do I like the idea of you can actually get a sense of what your neighborhood is uh, potentially worth if somebody wanted to sell their home? Are there any new uh, things that you're adding to the website if people wanted to, to if you wanted to provide that information to them? Nothing new over last year. I think that we we really revamped it uh, a handful of years ago, and um, we've added a there's a feature I think even where you can see on more of a map basis. So you're not just necessarily left stuck having to figure out what an address is, but you can see the property on a map, figure out what property you want to look at, and if you're trying to figure out what the assessment of a neighboring property is, I think it's easier than ever to go find that and really uh, you know do that comparison for yourself to see if your property is really valued fairly in relation to other properties. Excellent. Uh, and when can people expect uh, the notices to to to, to hit uh, their mailbox? Is it just right right in early January? Yeah, it's right in early January. I mean, sometimes it's impacted by, uh, you know, the weather that's occurring around <laughs> that time of year. Uh, but, you know, give or take a couple of days, it's always there in early January. Excellent. Thank you so much, Brian. Really appreciate your time today. Yeah, great. Thanks so much for having me, Jazz. Take uh, care. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for fell. Here's another shot. Right by the door. Those words broadcast by Foster Hewitt from a Moscow arena nearly 50 years ago sparked a spontaneous celebration across Canada. Paul Henderson's goal with just 34 seconds left in Game 8 gave Team Canada a 6-5 lead and victory in the Canada-Soviet Union Summit Series of 1972. Now millions of Canadians, their eyes fixated on television sets and listening on the radio in offices and classrooms across the country, saw the goal and erupted in celebration. Well, in 1972, Gary Smith was a young Canadian diplomat working out of the embassy in Moscow and an important behind-the-scenes figure in the Summit series. Now, the series began in Montreal on September 2nd with the expectations that Canada's players would easily brush aside the Soviet challenge. It ended 26 days later in Moscow uh, when the eighth and deciding game was played. Now, the series itself, from game to game, has been extensively chronicled, but Smith's story of how the series came together and the intrigue that unfolded off the ice hasn't been nearly as well documented. In celebration of the 50th anniversary, Smith's published a memoir called Ice War Diplomat. Now, I'd highly recommend it if you're looking for a Christmas gift, if you like um, a mix of hockey, politics, and a dash of international intrigue. It is a good read. I'd highly recommend it. Joining me now is Gary J. Smith. Gary, thank you for speaking to us today. Well, great to be with you. Yes, well, it, it brought back a lot of nostalgia, and uh, and it just speaks to what a great moment that was uh, for our country. But you always forget that look, we're in the midst of the um, of the Cold War at that time. I'm very curious, how did the series itself come about at that time? Well, you know, Jazz, uh, there were two elements to this series. One was the political. Um, we were in the Cold War. We had there were about a million troops facing off against each other in Germany. There were missiles and all kinds of fighter aircraft and so on. We had just come uh, away from the Cuban Missile Crisis, where there was the chance of a nuclear war, and the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. So 
our prime minister at the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was very concerned about this, and he wanted to reduce tensions with the Soviet Union and was looking for a way to do it, try and find some common ground. And we thought that the best way to find common ground with the Soviets was hockey. You know, we had exchanges with scientists and educators and ballerinas and musicians and so on. But they only touched a small part of the population. Mm -hmm. Hockey ran uh, deep in Canada and ran deep in Russia. So there was the political drive to reduce tensions, find some common ground, try and put a face on communism through, uh, through sport. And on the other hand, on the hockey side, you know, we had always won world championships and Olympics, but the last time we won the Olympics was 1952 hmm. with the uh, Guelph uh, Mercuries. And the last time we won the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation World Championships was 1961 with the Trail Smoke Eaters. So we were really uh, upset and unhappy that the Soviets, so-called amateurs, were winning all these trophies. And we couldn't put our best players on the ice, and that was the NHL players. So we were looking for a way to uh, get around that. And through the combination of the politics and the push on the hockey side, mm-hmm. uh, the embassy in Moscow was able to play a role, and we were able to work on an arrangement. It would be a bilateral, just between Canada and the Soviet Union, no, no tournament, Four games in Canada and four in the, in the Soviet Union. No trophy. You know, at the end of it, no one was going to lift a cup or anything. Just bragging rights. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what uh, what happened. I mean, for, forget about the, the Cold War just for a second. I mean, even at, at that time, I think, uh, was it Richard Nixon the president at that time? Were, he, were the Americans happy with Trudeau's visit to, to Russia? No, uh, and Nixon was the president. Um you know, Nixon was trying to work a deal with the Chinese to gang up on the Russians. And uh-huh. the Russians were looking around and saying, well, how we, can we counter this? And they saw Pierre Trudeau, who said, look, I'd like some breathing space from the Americans. So he brought the Chinese, uh, recognized them, Mao Zedong. And Trudeau went on a 12-day visit to the Soviet Union in May 1971, the first time that a Canadian prime minister had gone to the Soviet Union. Uh, I, I think um, uh, tonight, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're actually going to the Canucks game and they're playing Montreal. Uh, but back in 71, we've been talking about 71 prior to the series itself, uh, the Soviet Premier watched a similar game in, in Vancouver, did, did he not? That's correct. And that's why I wanted to go tonight, the, the symmetry of it. Because after Pierre Trudeau had gone to Moscow, the Russians decided to hurry back to Canada and uh, they had their eye on our technology. A lot of it was American technology, you know, in the auto sector, pulp and paper, hydro generation. So this is Alexei Kosygin, and he comes to Canada, and the very first thing, somebody jumps on his back on uh, Parliament Hill, and one journalist said uh, he rode him like a horse. <laughs> there, uh, there were protests, you know, thousands of people in the street protesting against this communist leader. So Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Edmonton, and when he gets to Vancouver, um, we had penciled in a hockey game between the Canucks and uh, Montreal Canadiens. This is mid-October 71. And he was lying on his bed, and uh, he didn't want to go. He said, I can't face any more booing. And Paul Martin Sr., who was an escort officer, and Arthur Lang said, well, I think if you come to the game, 
you'll get a different reception. So they convinced him to come, and sure enough, he gets down there on the center ice, and Henri Richard, the captain of the Canadians, and Orlin Kurtenbach, the captain of the Canucks, give him uh, two hockey sticks, and he gives them cufflinks. And that was the very first time that the Soviet flag flew in an NHL arena. And all of a sudden, because Segan realizes, look, I've got all these boos and people who hate the, hate the Soviet Union, but here is a place where I'm getting applause. And that's when the light went off for him, that the way to improve relations with Canada and Canadians was through hockey. Wow, and it happened right here in Vancouver. That's uh, that is um, that is fabulous. Now, for you as a young diplomat, uh, um, what was it like for you on a personal level? I mean, this was the Cold War. This is still hockey, uh, and there's a lot of politics, and you're dealing with a, a different era in, in in Soviet history. What was this era like for you as a young diplomat? Well, it was uh, difficult. Let's put it that way. Um, they decided I had, uh, when I joined External Affairs in 68, they put me right away on the Soviet desk. And I was dealing with the, the invasion of Czechoslovakia. You know, will they invade, won't they, or maybe. And I guess uh, External Affairs felt that I did all right with that. So they said, you're going to go to Moscow, but before you do, you're going to learn Russian. And they sent myself and my wife to a special military school. And it was just the two of us and a teacher for a whole year, day after day, week after week, month after month. And we were sent ahead of Trudeau's visit to help uh, with preparations. But it was a, a time when food was in short supply. There were very few uh, automobiles were there. And the KGB uh, paid particular attention to myself and my wife because we were from a NATO country and uh, we spoke Russian. And there were lots of incidences where, you know, the, they had a playbook. They'd try to uh, get you in the black market with currency. They would try to uh, convince you that this is a worker's paradise. You should come over to the uh, the other side. They had um, men and women, uh, I call them uh, swallows and ravens, who worked for the KGB. They were basically sex workers and tried to entrap you. It was called the honey trap. Mm -hmm. And then they had something called Romeo agents. And it wasn't about sex, but it was about love. Because the KGB and their friends in East Germany realized that if you fall in love with somebody, you are ready to do a lot of things. And in the spy world, mm -hmm. uh, that's often uh, the way that things go, is uh, you find out secrets through, uh, through love. That is that's a fascinating, fascinating era. Now, the book itself has many sort of behind-the-scenes uh, stories and uh, that I can't get through in this interview, but uh, give me a sense, did the, the Canadian side in the game itself and the series itself, did they take for granted that they were going to win? I mean, was there a bit of uh, perhaps a cockiness there on the Canadian side? Very, very much so. Um, all the journalists, you know, sometimes journalists uh, operate in a herd, Mm -hmm. You know, they're all on one side here or one side there. And I'd say 95% of all Canadian and American journalists, uh, New York Times included, predicted an eight-game sweep. We were going to win all eight games and by quite the margin. And this was also in September. And this was a time when no Canadian hockey player trained in the summer. You know, they drank a lot of beer. <laughs> they often worked work for breweries and terribly out of shape. 
and we there there was an arrangement where we would exchange uh, coaches, and the Soviets sent over two coaches. They watched every Canadian practice, and our coaches went over and watched only one practice, and said that Vladislav Tretyak, their goalie, was a sieve because. I said to them, we, I was at the, that game, and I said, look, he, he just had a stag party the night before. He's getting married tomorrow. He doesn't have his mind on the game. Well, they weren't paying too much attention. And this whole country, Canada, uh, was transfixed. We got to Montreal on September the 2nd, 1972. We were going to wipe the ice with the Soviets, and indeed, we scored two goals in the first six minutes. But Coach Harry Sinden had put out 12 forwards and only five defensemen. And it was a very, very hot night. And slowly the Soviets come back. It's 2-1, 2-2, 3-2 for them, 4-2, 5-2. And they win the game 7-3. And this whole country, Canada, was stunned. And I went into the... uh, I was traveling with the Soviet team in Canada for the four games here. Went into the dressing room uh, with the Soviet officials and... They used the word skaska, which is the Russian word for fairy tale. It was a fairy tale for them. They didn't think they were going to win, and certainly not by 7-3. to three. So that was a shocker, Rooney, for, uh, for all concerned. And even the Russians back home were surprised because we may have had 16 million Canadians watching on TV and, and listening on radio. They had We estimated 150 million Soviets were watching this on TV. So this was a really big deal, and both countries were engrossed by it. And as the series went along, you know, this country ground to a halt. Uh, schools stopped. They assembled kids in gymnasiums to watch it on TV. Businesses stopped. People uh, gathered in front of uh, TVs, in front of department stores, all to watch uh, this series. So it it was a massive thing, and... The Dominion Institute of Canada says this wasn't just a hockey series. This was great history of Canada, and it's one of the... They listed it as one of 10 most important historic events in Canadian history, along with Medicare, women's suffrage, uh, the flag, uh, D-Day, uh, Vimy Ridge, and so on. So it it that's why 50 years later there's still such a massive interest in this yeah absolutely i've got about 30 seconds left i gotta ask when the players were here in vancouver i understand you took them to the 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 team was taken to the aquarium and what was their sense of vancouver the russians well the um the thing was that they were surprised that so many people were living so well off you know they the theory in in russia was that there are big wigs at the top of the pile right uh, people with cigars and top hats and so on. And they were very surprised to see uh, sort of the average man with a car and, and a house. And the other thing in Vancouver, uh, but this is game four, September 8th, Vancouver crowd booed Team Canada. That's, uh, you know, really part of the history. It was very, very surprising. We, uh, our team uh, took a lot of penalties and and uh, lost the game here in Vancouver. And that's when the famous speech by Phil Esposito that uh, said, we didn't deserve to be booed by our own fans. Uh, It was sort of like your own army booing you. So Vancouver plays a big role in this, both for the hockey game and for the uh, Kosygin visit when uh, he watched the Canucks and uh, Montreal Canadiens game. 
Well, in many ways, you're uh, coming full circle as you go to the game tonight with the Canucks uh, and Montreal. Gary, an absolute pleasure chatting with you in a fabulous book. Uh, it, it really does shine a different type of light uh, on this series. We all know about the game, but there's so many intricate little stories that you tell. I would highly recommend people pick it up. It's called Ice War Diplomat. Like I said, the hockey is there. The international intrigue is there. A fabulous, fabulous um, uh, sort of uh, just it, it helps you get a better sense of the time and the moment as well. Gary, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Enjoyed talking with you. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Beijing has set up more than 100 so-called overseas police stations across the globe to monitor, harass, and in some cases, repatriate Chinese citizens uh, living in exile, according to a new report. A Madrid-based human rights campaigner, Safeguard Defenders, said it found evidence China was operating 48 additional police stations abroad since the group first revealed the existence of 54 such stations in September. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this new report uh, is Jeremy Nuttall. He's a Vancouver-based investigative reporter for the Toronto Star and someone who has lived and worked in China as well. Jeremy, welcome. Hi, good to be here. Uh, before we get into the, the broad uh, nature of this report, I wanted to confirm of, of the hundred, we haven't heard of uh, of a station in Vancouver. This Does this report say there is, there is a, a station here in Vancouver? Yeah, this report says there is one, but it can't. It can't. It doesn't pinpoint the exact address. Um, so, Safeguard Defenders sort of gleans a lot of this information from uh, public, publicly available documents, many attributed to the the Chinese government. And through that process, they have uh, deciphered that there is um, a police station in Vancouver uh, being operated by the Wenzhou uh, police authorities uh, on some level. They're not sure the exact address. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's a few guesses that uh, I think some people could hazard, but uh, no, no proof of where it actually is yet. And another, um, another police station, they don't know the, the location, even the province that it's in. They just have uh, picked up that there is another one being talked about. Mm-hmm. And there was previous reports that Toronto had a couple of stations potentially. Yeah, Toronto had three run by the Fujo police. Okay. And that was in the greater Toronto area. Uh, what do these stations do here? Well, what, what the Chinese government says they're doing is helping people renew their Chinese driver's licenses and things like that. But what Safeguard Defenders and other uh, critics say is they're, they're set up to uh, coerce and intimidate Chinese uh, uh, citizens who are going into going back to China to face criminal charges in some cases. Uh, and in other cases, just because they're uh, people that China doesn't want living abroad or they're living in areas where uh, China doesn't want its citizens. Uh 
how much, how concerned should we be as Canadians uh, in regards to this nation and its sovereignty? Well, you know, I'd say that considering um, the Chinese government feels that Canada is one of the countries that it can simply set up shop in um, and 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 do what it wants at will and harass uh, people who hold Canadian citizenship in Canada. Uh, you know, I think that we should be very concerned and, and wonder how it got to this point. Uh, have other uh, other authorities dealt with these stations? Some have. Uh, the Netherlands has ordered them closed. Um, there was one in Dublin, Ireland, uh, that was also ordered closed by the Irish government. Um, and you've also got Austria is looking into it. There's a, there's a few other countries that are actually looking into, um, you know, the, re- the original report from back in September. Um, but off the top of my head, the only two that have, have you actually seen some concrete action were from Netherlands and Ireland. How does one, I mean, when, when you say they persuade citizens to come back to China, or others have said, I mean, that is just harassing and uh, intimidating. One would argue they may even could be harassing and intimidating family members back in China. I mean, uh, this is all, of course, done behind the scenes, and none of us see exactly what's said or done. Yeah, and there was, the most interesting thing was a couple of weeks back, maybe a month ago, actually, mm-hmm. uh, there was a U.S. court case where they charged seven people uh, with harassing and, and intimidating uh, a Chinese guy in New York State uh, to get him to go back to China. Um, and so the actual tactics used, it was the first time that we got a real, a real look at it. And it was, you know, they had state companies fire, file uh, frivolous lawsuits against him in U.S. courts. Uh, they had his family back home uh, being pressured to the point where one actually came over and tried to get him to come back. Um, they, they, they also coordinated calls with people in Canada to try to get him to come to the Chinese uh, consulate in Toronto to discuss the matter. Um, and uh, so the U.S. authorities have decided that, they should, that they're they going to charge people that they catch doing this. Hmm. Uh, what does this mean, this latest information that came out today, in the context of uh, what we heard uh, last week or uh, about a week and a half ago uh, in regards to the Indo-Pacific strategy? How does this, uh, how does our response, our potential response, how would that fit in with a broader conversation and discourse around China today? Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, there's been a lot of, of talk about foreign interference in Canada. And, uh, you know, mostly they've been talking about it in the last week or a week or so in regards to Canadian elections. But, you know, I think this would definitely qualify as well. Uh, I think it, you know, I think it shows that, Canada may be on the right track or is on the right track when it comes to uh, starting to stand up for itself within its own borders against the Chinese government. Uh, I am, I'm positive that we're going to hear uh, that there are more than just five of these stations in Canada. There's 11 in Italy, and Italy, I don't believe, has uh, near the sort of uh, diaspora population that Canada has of Chinese citizens. So, uh, you know, the idea that there's only five here kind of surprised me. You know, if, when you put it in that context, you're absolutely right. We got a, a, a sizable uh, Chinese population, Chinese expat population in Vancouver and Toronto, growing very quickly in Calgary and Edmonton uh, as well. And to yeah. assume that we have less offices here, particularly with our location and our connection to China over, uh, you know, decades uh, f- with family and, and uh, educational and, and business connections, that we would only have five is uh, is probably very much underestimated. Um, is this, I mean, with the Indo-Pac strategy, Indo-Pacific strategy, the the broader conversations about these police stations, it seems like actually the, the political class is actually catching up where the Canadian sentiment is has always been, is that there are people who remain skeptical of communist China. 
Yeah, and I, I'm still skeptical that they are catching up. I don't know if they're bowing to public pressure or they actually finally um, have taken note of the fact that, you know, there's realities that you can't change. And one of those realities is the communist, uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, forcing their agenda no matter what um, and, and doing what they what they want and not actually changing or or uh, uh, becoming better on human rights and, and freedom within China, which is sort of what we were always told, is that, you know, if we engage with them economically, that magically there'd be uh, a, whole, a whole bunch of terrific things happen in China. And uh, on the human rights and, uh, and front, that certainly hasn't happened. So I think that's one of the things that uh, Canadians have reacted to. And I guess we'll see if the Canadian government is going to react to the way Canadians reacted. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll keep an eye uh, on on this issue for sure. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Always great, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.